Welcome to the River Fellowship Podcast. At River Fellowship, we desire to experience God, exalt Christ, embrace community, and engage the world. This week, lead pastor Daryl Anderson continues the series titled Real with part three, Real Power. When we understand the power of God and allow His power to be active in our lives, we experience five spiritual realities. If you'd like to learn more about River Fellowship in Amarillo, Texas, go to rfamarillo.org. Uh, we're continuing our series now entitled Real. It's out of 1 Corinthians. And we're basically looking at some real issues facing the church at Corinth and just trying to make some, some application for us today. We started by talking about real impact and the idea was Christ wants to make an impact in our life and leave the imprint of his spirit in us so that we can make an impact in the world and leave an imprint of Christ in the world. Last week, we talked about a real perspective. And the idea there was our participation in the permissible. Just because we can doesn't mean we should. And based on what we participate in, it should be guided by some questions like, does it glorify God? We want to be sure it doesn't cause a believer to stumble. We don't want it to hinder the gospel. This morning, I want to look at the concept of real power. Real power. There are some things in, just in nature that have some real power. They say that botulinum toxin is the most powerful poison in the world. They say one gram of this bacteria-based poison can kill up to a million people. The rhinoceros beetle is, to, is supposed to be the most powerful creature ever. This little six-inch bug is said to be able to lift up as much as 850 times its weight, its own body weight. So Ryan Kennelly holds the world's record for the bench press, 1,075 pounds. Can you imagine that? I, I can't even bench that in my dreams. But for him to lift the same amount as the rhinoceros beetle, he would have to bench press 300,000 pounds, 80 Toyota Camrys. <laughs> That's the strength of this beetle. The, the Navy is testing a, a new gun, have been evidently for a few years. It's the 32MJ LRG. It's an electromagnetic rail gun. And it's said to have an accuracy of 200 miles. So they say you could shoot it from downtown Manhattan and hit a billboard in downtown Boston. Now to put that in our geographic location, you could be outside of Wichita Falls and kill a deer outside of Claude with that gun. Now we, we talk about some other power dynamics just among us. We, you know, we say things like knowledge is power, money is power. So, so this idea of power is not new to any of us, but in the spiritual realm, there also is power. And I think we all know that. I want to start off this morning by being a little broad in general. Then we'll, we'll move toward the end. We'll make some application and get to a very specific passage in a moment. But I want to talk about three different spiritual power, powers. Three powers in the spiritual realm. Isn't going to be surprising to any of us. Okay, We're just going to review a little bit. The first one is the power of the enemy. Our enemy, our adversary, really does have great power. In chapter 15, verse 24 uh, it's talking about the resurrection of Christ and, and we'll have a resurrection. 
But Paul says that he has destroyed or he will destroy all dominion, authority, and power. And here he's talking about this, this evil power source. There, there is a real enemy that has real authority and real dominion, and it's, it's an army of evil, if you will, and they have real power. And in chapter 15, verse 56, it goes on and talks about the power of sin. In chapter 10, verse 13, he talks about the power of temptation. He says, there's no temptation that's overtaken you, but such is common. But that gives us the, the concept that temptation has a power. So in the context of this power of the enemy, that includes the power of the enemy, the evil force, the power of sin, the power of temptation. Now, we know temptation comes from the evil one because James 1.13 says, when tempted, no one should say that God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So we know, even though we sin, the initiation of that all comes from the enemy. So that's the power of the enemy. There's a second power, though, and it's the power of self. This is one issue that Paul tries to address with the first Corinthians. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, you remember that we said the, there's three characteristics that make up the fabric of Corinth, promiscuity, pride, and polytheism. We dealt with promiscuity and polytheism a little last week, but this week we, in self, it's in the context of pride because the Corinthians took great pride in self, in their education in their wisdom, in their knowledge, in their philosophy, in their skills, in their oratory abilities, even in their religion. So they were depending upon the power of self. And so the power of self includes things like the power of our decisions, the power of our will. The idea here is that when we have this concept that we have power, we begin to want to function and live in the spiritual realm in our own power, in our own strengths, in our own abilities, depending upon our self-generated strength. But here's the problem with this. The power of self is extremely limited. And Paul knows this. And because he knows this, he indicates this in a variety of his conversations through this letter of 1 Corinthians. In chapter 1, verse 25, he says, the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. He's simply saying that God has unlimited power and man has extremely limited power. In chapter two, verses three and four, he says, I came to you in weakness and fear and my message and preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. In other words, part of what the Corinthians did, they took so much pride in their ability to philosophize and to orate and to speak that they depended on that. And Paul says, I don't have any power like that because the power is not in the words, because that's a very limited kind of power. In chapter four, he's talking to uh, the Corinthians about some guys, evidently, that had kind of infiltrated the church, and they were saying a bunch of other kinds of stuff and confusing the message that Paul was trying to communicate. So he said, when I come, I'm going to address this. In chapter four, verse 19, he says, I'll find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. Verse 20, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. In other words, what Paul is saying is if these guys are relying on themselves, on their own abilities, it's not going to get them very far. In other words, the old phrase, they may can talk the talk, but they can't walk the walk. He's going to find out if they're walking the walk or just talking the talk because they're relying upon the power of self. Here's the truth about the power of self. It's extremely limited. But we have no power 
against the power of the enemy. We have no power against the power of sin. We have no power against the power of temptation. We have no power over the power of death. There's only one power that has the power over those things, and it's the third power source that we talked about. It's the power of God. Some of you may know what this is. Most of you probably won't. This is a train car mover. On the bottom, it's got this big heavy metal stuff, steel. This is a train car mover. A, you know, in, in, a, in a depot, you have all these train cars, and they've got to be moved from track to track and reassembled and reattached and all this sort of stuff. So it's got to be moved somehow. The only problem is the train car weighs about 80,000 pounds. And the cargo can weigh 120 to 150,000 pounds. So when this train car is loaded down with cargo, it weighs about 200,000 pounds. So there's no way a man can just push 200,000 pounds. Even though there's some wheels on it, you're not going to push 200,000 pounds. So they've got to move them. And the, back in the day, they would just have to hook up the engines and spend all this time and effort to get stuff moved. Well, a guy invented this train car mover or this diesel and the way it works is it would slide, it would slide in, it's hard to see, I, I know, it would slide in, there's a little hook down here on this piece that would slide underneath the rail and one guy would just start pushing this and it would start pushing the train car. And at first it's gradual, but then it picks up steam and it would actually go four or five miles an hour to push this car. So one person could push a 200,000 pound train car with one tool. This is the illustration of the spiritual realm and the mistake that we make when we try to push a 200,000 pound and we try to go against the enemy. We don't have the strength and the ability to do that, but God is the one that does that. 1 John 4, 4 says, greater is he who's in us than he who's in the world. So we have these three power sources, but when we talk about the power of God, Paul gets even more specific about what that entails, what's involved, what's part of the power of God. And he gives us two aspects. The first one is the power of the cross. We see that in chapter one, verse 17. Paul says in 117, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Now, he talks about the power of the cross. He's not talking about that little wood implement that Christ died on. He's talking about the message of the cross. He's talking about the work of the cross. He's talking about Christ on the cross and what it did through the cross. That's the power of the cross. But he says a comment in verse 17 that the cross of Christ can be emptied of its power. Now, how do you empty the cross of its power? Well, he tells us right before that, it's human wisdom. In other words, the way we empty the cross of its power is when we do not believe the message of the gospel. Because it said it's power to those who believe. So when we reject the message of Christ and the message of the gospel, really what we're doing is we're emptying the cross of its power. Now, the cross still has power. It just doesn't have any power in my life. It hasn't impacted my life at all. That's what verse 18 says. It's foolishness to those perishing, but it's power to those that believe. And he expands on this a little bit in verse 23. He calls out the Jews and the Greeks. They both had an issue with the cross. For the, for the Jews, they had a couple of issues. One, they didn't believe God could die. 
God was eternal. So the fact that Jesus died on the cross just proved to them that Jesus isn't God because God can't die. They couldn't understand that. Plus, they were expecting a, an, an earthly reign, an earthly kingdom. They expected the Messiah to come and, and release them from tyranny and set up a political kingdom and let them rule on earth. And so when Jesus dies on the cross, that, just, that was a stumbling block to them. They could not get a hold of the real Jesus with the real message of salvation, and they just tripped over that concept. But to the Greeks, they had a different issue. It was foolishness to the Greeks. They just thought it was stupid. <laughs> they thought it was ridiculous. It's so far-fetched. What are you talking about? Remember, they're idolaters. So their first issue was, you mean God would die for me? God would do something for me? They didn't get that because in idolatry, it was all about me doing something for this God. I had to do stuff and, and work and to try to appease this God that, that maybe I would get pleasure from. You know, from this God to have favor. It was all them doing. The idea that God would do something to sacrifice for man, the Greeks, they just couldn't comprehend that. Plus, because they were logical and philosophers and they thought they were wise, they said, if, if he died on the cross, how's he gonna save me? <laughs> if he didn't have the power to save himself, how does he have the power to save me? So they just couldn't get it. So for them, it was a stumbling block and it was foolishness. But he says in 24, for those that believe, it's power. It's the power of God. So that one aspect of the power of God is through the cross, through the power of the cross. The second one's in chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. And it's the power of the Spirit. 2, 4 says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. We're not going to deal with that this morning. We made later in the series. So that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Here he's identifying now the, the power of the Spirit. And it's in context again of this pride issue with the Corinthians, where they're depending on themselves and their own abilities and their own skills and their own tools. He's saying that's not where the power comes from. As a follower of Christ, that power is generated through the demonstration of God's power. So what we see here is, is kind of laying the groundwork is these three power sources, the power of the enemy, power of the self, and power of God. The power of the enemy is great. The power of self is extremely limited, but the power of God is the ultimate power and the ultimate strength that can help defeat the power of the enemy. So with all that in mind, I wanna look at chapter one, starting in verse four, and I want to deal with five realities that are ours when we rely upon and utilize the power of the cross and the power of the Spirit. Five realities that are ours. Let's look in chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. He says, I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you've been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. And that's just another way of saying really what I just said, is that you believe the message of the cross, you've received the power of the cross, you've received the power of the Spirit that now lives within you. It's been confirmed in your spirit. Verse 7, therefore, because of all that, therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. 
So here's what I want to leave with you this morning are five realities that are ours when we avail the power of the cross and the power of the Spirit in our life. Here's the first one. The first reality is real power. Okay, we're talking about being real, so keep that concept. We have real power. Verse 8 says, he will keep you strong. That phrase, keep strong, means to stand firm. It means will not be defeated. It's a word picture, really, of like that big oak tree that's sitting in the middle of the, of the ground. It's strong, it's firm, and the storms come and the winds blow, and that oak stays strong and firm. It cannot be uprooted. That's the concept of this word, to keep us strong. So when the temptations come, when the, when the storms of life come, we hold strong, we hold firm. The, the enemy cannot defeat us, and it's because of the power of the Spirit that resides in us and empowers us and gives us that strength. Paul understands the importance of the power of the Spirit because he says in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not put out the Spirit's fire. Your translation may say, do not quench the Holy Spirit. It's an interesting concept. Let me illustrate it for you. Now, I want to say this just right up front. This is a lame illustration, okay? I know it, and you're going to know it after I do it. But I couldn't do what I wanted to do. It's low budget. So you'll have to use your imagination just a little bit. I have a lamp. And right now, the lamp has no manifest power in and of itself, all right? The only way you have some manifest light or power is you have to have a bulb in it, and you have to... Turn the bulb on. So now with the bulb in and on, now you see this manifest light, this manifest power that is shining through this lamp. But let's say that I'm just a weird person and I'm a slob and I'm a mess and I do stupid things. Half of that's probably true. And I'm reading my newspaper, which I don't ever do, by the way. But I get tired of reading the newspaper and instead of putting it on the table, I just kind of throw it on my lamp just because I just find that that's the closest place for it. Well, now it's still illuminating a little bit, but it still really isn't really doing what it should do. It hangs like that for a couple of days, but then I go out and I come back in. It's cold. I've had my jacket, so I take my jacket off. But instead of putting it where I need to in the closet, I just said, I'm just going to throw it over here, and I just throw it on my lamp just like that. And I just leave it like that. Here's, here's the deal. That lamp now is not manifesting any power, any light. The light bulb is still in there. The light bulb is still on. But there's no manifestation. There's no, what Paul says, there's no demonstration of the Spirit's power taking place and being manifest in, his, in, his, in, in the lamp. The only way that's going to happen is to remove all of that stuff. Now, this is the best word picture I could give in low-budget theater of talking about what he's talking about here about quenching the Spirit. And that is, when the Spirit, when we receive Christ, which is the power of the cross, receiving the message of the cross, and He puts His Spirit in us, now the Spirit wants to demonstrate His power in us and through us. We are to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. So He wants to demonstrate that power, but if we're not careful, if we're just sloppy and we're just cautious and we're cavalier about our walk and our faith, we can allow things to begin to cover up all of the Spirit's work in us, a bunch of junk, sin, anger, fear, hatred, 
on and on. All this stuff that we just let reign in our heart and reign in our spirit, what begins to happen is that begins to squelch the spirit and it quenches the spirit. It puts out that spirit's fire and light. The spirit of God is still in you and the spirit of God is still powerful. (laughs) He's just not able to demonstrate his power in you and through you. The way that you have to do that, Paul says, is do not quench. In other words, don't let any of this happen. Give the Spirit permission to reign and have his way. Let me give you the cheesiest saying I've ever done, given to anybody. This is cheesy, but maybe it'll stick. Don't let the Spirit wane. Let the Spirit reign. I know it's cheesy. Okay, I just want you to know I know. <laughs> but you probably won't forget it now. Don't let the spirit wane. Let the spirit reign. That's what Paul's talking about, about quenching the spirit. But that's what he's talking about here, about real power. When we allow the Holy Spirit to be who he wants to be in us, and we rely upon his work in us instead of our own works, He's able to demonstrate power through our life. We have real power when we avail the power of the cross and the spirit. Here's the second reality that we have. We have real security. Because verse eight continues, he will keep you strong to the end. And that word to the end simply means gold. It means fulfillment. In other words, he's talking about the end of time. He's talking about when Jesus returns. He's talking about when all this stuff that we know in the physical is gone and now he's returned. He's going to keep us strong until that point, until that day. He's going to hold us secure. Verse 9 says that God's faithful. His faithfulness is like an anchor that solidifies us and anchors us and keeps us rooted like that strong oak tree. So there's nothing we can do. There's not anything the enemy can do to uproot us We have real security through the power of the cross and the power of spirit. Third reality, we have real transformation. Real transformation. Verse eight continues, he will keep you strong to the end and you will be blameless. Here he's talking about the concept of transformation where the old becomes new. In chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, Paul refers to and kind of calls out, if you will, uh, different lifestyles, the way people are living in their unredeemed, unregenerated state. In other words, they've not given their life to Christ. They've not experienced the power of the cross yet. They're, 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 They're unsaved. They're still ungodly. They're still living lifestyles that are not part of God's design. And in verse 11, though, he says... You were just like them. This is what some of you were. After he gives this list, he looks at the people in the church of Corinth. This is what some of you were. Very literally, he's talking about, because very literally, some of these people stepped out in their lifestyle of promiscuity and pride and polytheism. They were all these things Paul just talked about. They stepped out of that, and they were transformed. Paul says, you've been completely changed. This is what you were. So he's talking specifically, but he's also given us a a much broader picture. He's really talking about all of us. 
What he's saying is every one of us at a point in our life were unredeemed. We were powerless against sin. We were trapped in bondage. We were living in lifestyles that were not part of God's design. We were separated from God. Every one of us were like that. He says, but in, you, that's what you were. In, in verse 11, he goes on and says, you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified. Now, if I could say that more literally in English, what it would say is, your sins were washed away, you were made holy, and you were declared righteous. Through the power of the cross, through the power of the Spirit, our sins are washed away. It's a picture of a flood. We've all seen pictures on YouTube or whatever of, of these massive floods that kind of go through some of these communities, towns, and areas. It, it just takes everything with it. I mean, everything that's not nailed down and screwed down, it just, it just takes everything with it. We've even seen that here in Amarillo. Remember the big flood we had back when? I mean, trash cans are going down the street. Cars are going down the street. It just takes everything with you. This is the word picture here when he says your sins were washed away. What that means is God's grace, like a flood, came sweeping through my life, sweeping through my spirit, and it took every bit of sin away. It just, it just took all of it away. And at the same time, he comes behind us and he fills me with his spirit. And when he fills me with his spirit, he made me holy and he made me righteous. He takes all the old, he takes all the sin and he washes it away and he transforms me and makes me a brand new creation like 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says. I'm a brand new creation. I have been transformed. When we receive the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the spirit comes within us and we allow him to do his work, we experience real transformation. A real new birth really takes place. We really are new. That leads me to the fourth reality. We have real hope. And this is good news. Verse 8 says, He will keep you blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, all through Scripture, that's talking about the return of Jesus. It's talking about the end times, when he comes back to gather us home and we begin to reign with him forever. On that day, on that day, what that is saying in its basic form is it's real. It's really going to happen. We have real hope because the Christ return is real. <laughs> he really is coming back. The place that Jesus is preparing for us right now is real. The new heaven and the new earth is real. The throne of God that we will find ourselves worshiping around with all the heavenly hosts singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, all power, all authority. That is real. That's really going to happen. Those of us in Christ really are going to spend eternity with God forever in his presence. It is real. And because of that, we have a real hope. Here's the fifth reality. Right now, we have real fellowship. That's what verse 9 says. God has called us into service. Nope. Into obedience. Those are important. But first, he's called us in to fellowship. 
That means close association. It means intimacy. It means participation. It carries the idea of a gift. Here's really what this means when God's called us into fellowship. What that means is that God has offered us a gift. And that gift is to be a partaker of his divine nature. And to be able to walk in intimacy with the creator, the king, the Lord, our one true God in fellowship. Now this totally contradicted and blew away every pagan and Greek in Corinth. Because they're idolaters. There's no fellowship with a piece of wood. (laughs) Their gods were dead. There was no relationship. There was no association. There was no participation. There was no relationship. It was just a piece of something that they would go through ritual. That's not what we have. We have a real God, a real spirit, who really resides in us and desires and longs for real fellowship where we walk in intimacy and oneness with the God who created us. That's pretty exciting. But to experience real power, real security, real transformation, real hope, real fellowship is only possible through the power of the cross and the power of the Spirit. Verse 24, he sums it all up. He wraps it up and says, Christ is the power of God. Because the cross is the cross of Christ. And the spirit is the spirit of Christ. It all wraps around Christ. And the reality is I cannot walk in any of these realities apart from that life-changing decision of receiving Christ into my life as my personal Lord and Savior. When I say I recognize what you did on the cross for me, when you took my place and died for my sin, doesn't happen apart from that life-changing decision. And none of these realities are real in my life apart from the ongoing yielding of the Holy Spirit in my life. Allowing him to reign. So let me finish asking these questions. Are you experiencing these realities? If not, have you believed in the power of the cross? That's step one. That's that initial impact we talked about two weeks ago where immediately God's grace meets our sin and changes my life forever. Have you experienced that? transformation that changed the power of the cross if you say yes second question are you yielding your life to the power of the spirit over time have you let a bunch of junk quench that power my prayer for me my prayer for you my prayer for us is that we would walk in the realities of the power of the cross in the power of the Spirit. Thanks for listening. We truly hope that you are blessed and encouraged. If you'd like to learn more about River Fellowship in Amarillo, Texas, go to rfamarillo.org.